Rakia Delahatu and her family are milk producers in northern Nigeria, home to some of Africa's largest cattle populations. As we talk to Rakia, neighborhood children are bustling in the background. For centuries, cow herding families in this part of the world have been nomadic, with cows grazing in nearby places for food. But because of climate change, northern Nigeria has suffered from severe desertification and drought, forcing many herders to travel further to feed their cows, including Rakia. She spoke to us in her native Hausa language. We were having some challenges with where to sell the milk, and also the hard challenges that came with the cows not having enough food. This search for cattle feed also creates tension between cattle herders and farmers. According to the International Crisis Group, violence between the two groups has killed more people in recent years than the Boko Haram insurgency in northeastern Nigeria. More than 3,600 people have been killed in clashes over grazing land between 2015 and 2018. Thousands more have been displaced. And in 2018, it got really bad. At least 1,500 people have been killed in clashes between nomadic herders and sedentary farmers in central states. One crucial solution to this conflict is creating a better environment for dairy producers so they don't need to go as far to feed their cows. This would have a big impact not only on the country's security, but also the livelihood of many rural Nigerians, particularly women. And as you'll hear, the ways these women are banding together are not only transformative, they're also kind of ingenious. From Foreign Policy, you're listening to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. I'm Rena Nainan. So let's talk more about Rakia, who you heard at the top of the show. She participated in a program called ALDEEN, which stands for Advancing Local Dairy Development in Nigeria. It's focused on smallholder women dairy farmers who produce the majority of milk products in the country. Aldine, we should mention, is primarily supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which also supports this podcast. Anyway, Rakia says Aldine helped her and her family a lot. Our children are no longer bringing the milk to the roadside to sell it. We are not going far away from home. Now we are sending our children to school instead of taking the milk to go around for selling it. Through the program, Rakia learned how to feed her cows and milk more efficiently and got support to make these processes easier. She also became part of the Women's Savings Group and Cooperative, which have helped her start a ground nut oil business to supplement her income during months that her cows aren't producing as much milk, which in turn helped her become more financially independent. And beyond Rakia, other Nigerian women too have also begun changing their approach to dairy farming. Added together, it's all starting to have a cumulative impact on things like climate change, regional conflict, and the national economy. To get perspective on these bigger changes, we reached out to Ndidi Wunelli, co-founder of Sahel Consulting Agriculture and Nutrition Limited, which is leading the Aldine program. In Nigeria, historically, in the Fulani communities, while men have owned the cows, women have owned the milk. And so women have such an important role to play in the dairy value chain. And we wanted to ensure that we could transform the lives of women, smallholder dairy households, and address malnutrition in the country. It's also a sector that's been long neglected. 
while we spend about a billion dollars importing milk into Nigeria. And yet we have the fourth largest cattle herd in Africa. We could really displace imports and create an ecosystem that would not only generate jobs, address malnutrition, strengthen our local communities, address the security challenges in our country, and also empower women. Tell me a little bit more about how the dairy program works. The first component is that we map all the dairy communities around the processor sites. So and we integrate them, we train them, and we basically create cohorts of self-help groups that are committed to meeting the standards of the milk processing required by the companies that we're partnering with. We call them implementing partners. And then we also invest in infrastructure. So many of these communities don't have water, so we have invested in solar-powered boreholes, milk collection centers, milk collection cans, and through the training, empower them to be able to supply milk on a daily basis to the small processors. We then have a whole component around artificial insemination and improving the productivity of the cattle uh, and a feed and fodder intervention so that the cows don't have to travel to have access to food. So we're creating entrepreneurs who can provide feed. And then a major piece as well is around policy. Because I mentioned that Nigeria is a net importer of milk, we wanted to ensure that there's an enabling environment that supports local processing. And then to cap it all off, there's a big piece around financial inclusion and financial literacy, because many of these communities historically have not had formal bank accounts, have not been connected to the financial sector. And we want them to be empowered, not only through the milk they're selling, but also through every aspect of their lives. Mm. You talk a little bit about the gender component to all of this, and you say that the men own the cows, but the women own the milk. Why focusing on women dairy producers? Why is that so important when it comes to economic empowerment? What we've seen historically is that even though women own the milk, many of these women, unfortunately, spend so much time accessing water for the cows, having to go to markets to sell their milk, also having challenges around when the milk when they migrate, not having alternative sources of income. And so through this project, there's a comprehensive gender lens, not only ensuring that women have access to financial inclusion, support services, bank accounts, training, but beyond that, we're ensuring that we have men as champions. Because in many societies, when you empower women, there's backlash. And where you don't have male champions, oftentimes we see regression in many of the advances because there's a crackdown in society. So we're empowering men as champions and bringing them in to support the empowerment of women and the agency that this project provides to women. You know, and Didi, that's one of the big takeaways doing this podcast that I've come out with from country to country is bringing men in to be supporters, not just focusing only on women and getting them up on their feet, but having men also help is hugely important. When you see this program transforming lives of women, what stands out to you about the difference it's making in their lives? Not only are they seen, but they're empowered through financial inclusion, through training, through support, through the provision of a milk can so that when they milk their cows, they're milking them hygienically, and through the provision of economic support, they're paid on a daily basis for the milk they supply. They don't have to walk for miles to markets to sell their milk, and they don't have to work for miles to get water for the cows. And then through the self-help groups, we're providing them with additional resources and alternative sources of income. So that in the dry season, when the milk yields go lower, they don't have to 
reduce their eating or spending for their households, they have alternative sources of income. So we're empowering them with community gardens, with training on retail so they can start small shops and we're registering their cooperatives so that they have access to loans and grants and other mechanisms to improve their lives. Can you tell us a little bit about how the cooperative works for the dairy farm in Nigeria? In each of the dairy clusters, we've put communities together, as I mentioned, who supply milk to milk processors. So within those communities, we've created self-help groups that are male only, female only, and then some are mixed. And then these self-help groups have also been put together to form larger cooperatives that are registered with the government and recognized as an economic entity. And so that's been the evolution of the creation of the cooperatives. And through the cooperatives, they're then going to be able to raise funding, have access to loans, and then become recognized as a commercial entity that can not only advocate for changes in prices, but advocate for new support structures required in their communities. Is there any advice for women around the world who are trying to break through in these fields that for so long have been dominated by men? The first is I always tell women, Excellence and integrity have no hiding place. Bring your A-game to every single conversation and every single engagement. Empower other women to bring their best foot forward because your work will get recognized if you stick with it and if you're consistent and committed. I really believe that for every board I join, I need to bring two other women on that board. For every company that I start, I need to ensure 50%. So I create those spaces, but also make sure that when I do have a seat at the table, I create space for other women, especially women who need to have their voices heard and deserve that platform. That was Ndidi Wunelli, co-founder and managing partner of Sahil Consulting Agriculture and Nutrition Limited. It's hard to overstate how important farming is to the Nigerian economy. According to the UN, more than a third of the entire population is employed in agriculture. This is why Cornell research professor Ed Mabaya says the biggest way to change the lives of women in Nigeria is to change the way farming is done. Ed Mabaya is our next guest. You have got an amazing personal story and one that deeply is informed on why you chose to go into agriculture economics. You grew up in a rural village in Zimbabwe, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me about how your early years shaped what you're doing today. I like to tell this story. I'm the sixth of 11 children, born in a small farm in rural Zimbabwe, uh, about five hectares of land. And my dad worked a construction job in a nearby town, and my mom was a, a housewife. So after there was a civil war in Zimbabwe in the 1970s, which ended in 1980, and at the end of that, the government embarked on a program to promote agriculture even in rural areas using new technologies such as fertilizers and seed. So we farmed every piece of the land that we had grew up on, growing tomatoes, cabbages, maize, corn, as they call it here, fruits and vegetables that we sold in a nearby town. We were very successful at this. We were able to double our yield levels from all these different technologies. And using that extra income, my parents were able to send us to nearby missionary schools, which were a little bit better quality than what was available in the village. 
And through that kind of education, we were able to go, I was able to go to a local university. And from then on, I went to Cornell University and you could say the rest is history. Mm -hmm. But I like to think of my foundation is coming from smallholder agriculture that was enabled by productivity enhancing technologies that allowed open these new horizons for myself and my siblings. So right now we're all over the world in different professions. And I think I owe my, my beginnings to smallholder agriculture. Why do you think developing the agriculture sector is really so transformative for a country like Nigeria? So I like to think that not just in Nigeria, but pretty much all of Africa, agriculture is extremely important for development. By most estimates, about 60% of Africa's population lives in rural areas. Now, when you live in rural areas, there's only two pathways that you can take out of uh, poverty, and that's uh, education and agriculture. So one cannot talk about economic development in countries like Africa without talking about agriculture. By some estimates, agriculture has four times the potential to lift people out of poverty than any other sector in most parts of Africa. Speaking of economics, you've actually helped improve the economics of agriculture in Nigeria, in Ghana, and other countries, also the the dairy sector. Mm -hmm. What do you typically recommend doing first? to improve the success of the country's agriculture sector? The first step to doing any successful agriculture is to identify what the ecosystem looks like, who are the players, where are the key bottlenecks and constraints. Once you have that, it's easy to design an intervention aligned with government policies, including government policy, private sector players, civic society. You get all these parties together and you develop a program that. Uh, is going to be successful and productive. So in the case of dairy, for example, you realize feed input might be a constraint. The genetics of the animal might be a constraint. The infrastructure that it takes to move product from uh, rural areas to urban areas might be a constraint. The food sector itself, the food processing, milk processing could be a constraint. So you need to have a wide angle view of the entire value chain and be able to intervene at any one of these different points. And these are often moving targets. One thing that really surprised me and something that I think our Western listeners might not know is that many countries in Africa actually get a lot of excess imports from the U.S. and from Europe. They come at a very cheap price. Powdered milk is one of those things. Can you explain a little bit about how that happens? Yes. For example, here in the U.S., I think some numbers that I saw earlier on was that the U.S. subsidizes the dairy sector to a magnitude of about $40 billion per year. That was from about three years ago. Those are very big numbers. They result in excess production, and some of that is converted to powdered milk, which is exported to developing countries. So you need to have in place all the mechanisms that is going to allow the local sector to produce competitively and such that these tariffs have to be short-term measures as opposed to permanent long-term measures. I know it's not an easy task to improve the dairy sector in Nigeria. Can you tell us a little bit about the upside, despite all the challenges that have arisen? Why is this so important? So the first part is, for a long time in the world of development, we talked about food security. So we talked about filling the bellies with maize and rice and the staple starches. The new research now indicates that we got it wrong for a long time. It needs to be food and nutritional security. We need to allow everybody, especially pregnant women and children, to consume high level of good quality protein foods that are nutritionally dense. 
dairy offers that opportunity. If you're able to provide milk to pregnant women and uh, to children in the first 1,000 days, a lot of research shows that these kids grow up to be, you know, higher brain capacity, better health outcomes throughout the rest of their life. So when you can invest in passive agriculture that promotes nutritional security, you're likely to develop an entire generation of people. So in terms of an investment, one could not think of a more meaningful and impactful area to invest in. When you go to rural Nigeria and you see what people are able to do with some of these interventions, it's very clear often, at least to me, that whatever we're doing in agricultural sector development is going to impact livelihoods for people who are some of the poorest people in the world. So I think the power of agriculture to transform livelihoods uh, is something that we have underestimated for a long time. And I do not think that any country can develop itself until and unless it's able to feed itself. And what Nigeria is doing in the dairy sector is a very big step in the right direction, I think. Professor Ed Mabaya from Cornell. Thank you, Ed. Thank you very much for your time. Much appreciated. You bet. It may sound obvious, but you can't do anything in terms of improving the lives of women without making sure their basic sustenance needs are met. This is why investing in agriculture is crucial, not just for improving economic mobility, but on the basic level of making sure populations are well-fed and nourished. That really brought home to me how we should be focusing more attention on that, especially with pregnant women, mothers, and children. On next week's podcast, our last one, sad to say, of our season, we're going to try and look at the big picture of what's being done and what major challenges still exist for women around the globe. We'll hear from a pioneer in this area, Melan Verveer, the first ever U.S. ambassador for global women's issues. She'll talk about the work that she's done to help women around the world achieve economic independence. The targeting of women, I think, in many ways, has to do with this recognition uh, that the power of women, uh, they're exerting their economic role, their political role, uh, which lifts up men and women, girls and boys. It's not a zero-sum game, but somehow it's a threat uh, to these autocratic rulers. That's next week's episode. And that does it for today's show, The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. It's a production of Foreign Policy and is supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and write us a review. It really helps spread the word about what we're doing. Also, you can still sign up to get a policy brief on gender equality. This is content that's normally behind a paywall at Foreign Policy, but we're offering special access to our podcast listeners. It's a great resource for understanding the big picture on what's happening globally to try and tackle gender inequality. Just visit go.foreignpolicy.com backslash recovery. That's go.foreignpolicy.com backslash recovery. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is hosted by me, Rena Nainan. Laura Rosbrow Tellum is our senior producer. Andrew Perella, our editor. Rob Sachs, managing director. Foreign Policy's audio team includes Dan Efron, Rosie Julin, Zamone Perez, and special thanks to Saidu Abubakar and Aisha Zana Mustafa. Thank you. And we'll be back in your feed with our last episode of the season next week. <laughs>